0: All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement.
1: What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lions' hands. folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The opinions we share, all that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz
0: all right, Brendan. It is January twenty second. Fresh off another dusting of snow yesterday, your winter beard is coming in, and <laughs> full. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how was your weekend? Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, if
2: you if you follow us on Instagram, I guess you can you can see the evolution over the course of the seasons. This is it is, I, I'm probably like halfway through the beard season and people are people are starting not to be pleased with it (laughs) which is what happens every season around this time but that's all right uh i got to do another winter activity this weekend ricky i went to the bruins montreal Canadiens game and the 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 bruins put nine on them so that was that was a pretty that was the highlight of my weekend how was how was your weekend what have you been up to
0: i had a very different weekend brennan (laughs) i uh you know that uh That uh that Will Ferrell line in old school where the guy's like, you know, what are you up to this weekend? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe a little Home Depot, Bed Bath and Beyond. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have time. That that very much encapsulates my weekend. We uh Ginny and I, my wife and I, we got we did a little uh crib shopping. We went, went we went to a mall. We hit up the cheesecake factory, oh goodness, and then goodness. I uh then I <laughs> then I hung up some drywall and there's <laughs> some, some wallpaper and some curtains and oh like oh man uh i i was talking to a friend that i haven't really spoken to since our wedding uh since my wedding and and they were asking you know how's how's everything going uh like are you ready or are you feeling like a dad right now and i was like i I'm not really sure, but I will say that I've bought more tools in the last like three months than I have, I think, in my entire life combined. And I'm not entirely sure why, but I feel like maybe maybe there's some innate badness
2: coming at me. I don't know. We'll 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 have to see. (laughs) But that's that that was an incredible description i i don't even know where to begin to react to that i i feel like i don't even know you anymore (laughs) i was gonna say i feel like
0: i feel like you would be mad but it's just kind of absurd so
2: that's yeah i guess (laughs) that's that's just is what it is and like we talked about last week when you announced that that you were expecting in a few months. I think a lot of people, probably a lot of listeners, whether they're our age, experiencing something similar or older, kind of reminiscing back on the time in their lives when they went through that exact period probably empathize with that, probably far more than empathize with what I'm doing in my life. So (laughs) that's good, Ricky, for bringing a little reality to people. (laughs) Well, you know,
0: I I try to do that, inject a little reality when I can. But I digress. What what are we, uh, what do we got? what are we talking about this
2: week well this is i think a, a break from normal programming and i'm excited to do it so in the midst of you know primary season is very much underway and both on this program and probably in all sorts of the media you consume, that's what you're being inundated with, is politics, politics, politics. We're going to take a little break from that. Um, And we're going to welcome on uh, Dr. Gregory Skolmalt, who is one of the leading great white shark experts in the country. He has been studying sharks for 35 plus years at this point, and now much of his research is focused on the great white sharks who have reemerged in the area of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, which obviously is personal to you and I who grew up around here and going down to the Cape and spending time on those beaches and swimming in those waters. And there were no shark attacks in the Cape between 1936 and 2012. And then all of a sudden over the last decade plus now, sharks are have become almost ubiquitous. Like that's part, I feel like every day in the summer, not that luckily, you know, knock on wood, there haven't been too many shark attacks, but what you see is beaches shut down or great white sharks spotted here or there. And it seems like they're, they're everywhere now. And so Dr. Skomal caught my eye because he just came out with a book about his life studying sharks uh, just last summer. And now that he has a little bit of time off, this is like his off season in a lot of ways, uh, where we wanted to bring him on to talk about how sharks came back here, why they're here, talk to us about the science behind that, the any policy implications of that science and so again, we think this is going to be a nice uh, break from like the regularly scheduled programming here, and I don't know. I, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. I'm hopeful for it, and I, I certainly I hope people uh, enjoy it.
0: Yeah, if you uh, if you're, if you're sick of the political ads and the political commentary, we've got the episode just for you.
2: Exactly. All right. Before we bring Dr. Skolm on, just a reminder to everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. So definitely give those guys uh, a shout. And if you do, let them know that we sent you.
0: All right. Let's get
2: into it. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome Dr. Greg Skomal to the program. Dr. Skomal is an accomplished marine biologist, underwater explorer, photographer, aquarist, and author. Dr. Skomal has been a senior fisheries biologist with the Massachusetts Marine Fisheries since 1987, uh, and he currently works, uh, he heads up the Massachusetts shark research program. Through the Massachusetts Shark Research Program, he's been involved in the study of the life, history, ecology, and physiology of sharks. His research has spanned multiple fish habitats around around the globe, taking him from the frigid waters of the Arctic Circle to the coral reefs in the tropical Central Pacific. He is also an adjunct faculty member at the UMass School for Marine Science and Technology, as well as a guest investigator at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution of Woods Hole, Massachusetts, Dr. Skomel holds a master's degree from the University of Rhode Island and a PhD from Boston University. He has written dozens of scientific uh, research papers and has appeared in a number of film and television documentaries, including programs for National Geographic and the Discovery Channel. He is also the author of many books, the latest of which is Chasing the Shadows, My Life Tracking the Great White Shark, which came out just this past July. So uh, now that Dr. Scomble is in as much of an off season as really exists for him, we are thrilled that he is joining us. So thanks so much for, for coming on. Today.
3: It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for inviting me.
2: Yeah, so I, Dr. Scomble came to our attention this summer when his latest book came out. And as we were kind of recounting before we started recording, um, Ricky and his, Ricky's family has a house down in Cape Cod here in Massachusetts, and I grew up. Going down the Cape with my family, and so the reemergence of sharks in our lives has been a significant like event for us. That in in so when Dr. Skomal's book came out in July, I had reached out to him because I was like, "Man, I want to talk about this." Because Ricky and I grew up, and sharks were just not really a thing. They were some distant thing that you would think that were happening in Florida or in like the Indian Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. And all of a sudden, they were like here very much in our lives. And I was always curious, like, wh- why? Uh, and so we're, we're thrilled to bring Dr. Skoll in to talk about that. Before we get into, you know, the re- reemergence of sharks here in uh, the Atlantic over the past decade, can you just give people a little bit of background on yourself? How did, how did you get into this field of like the study of sharks and, uh, and, and like their ecosystems?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I think the short story, and I and I talk about this in 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 Chasing Shadows, the book. You know, I spend a little bit of time on my trajectory as a scientist, um, going from a little kid who was infatuated by sharks to a scientist that actually studies sharks. But I I grew up in in, in southwestern Connecticut, not far from uh, the New York City border, and. Um, uh, most of my love of the ocean in those days did not come from exploring, actually exploring Long Island Sound, which was the closest body of water, but it was, you know, watching television and setting up aquariums in my home and the movie Jaws. And 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 I really was inspired by that film, you know, and in addition to a, an early pioneer and explorer uh, that was doing television shows by the name of Jacques Cousteau, who I'm sure most people know that name. So, you know, I became infatuated with the ocean, I became infatuated with sharks. And then I saw this character, Matt Hooper in the movie Jaws. And I said, wow, he's got a pretty cool job. (laughs) Um, I think I'd probably like to do that for a living. You know, I'm sure not the only, kid. I know I'm not the only kid who said that, Um, but here I am, you know, pinch myself decades later and I'm doing exactly that. So, you know, I think one of the lessons from the book is you could chase a dream and actually catch it, you know? (laughs)
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's really cool and you must be one of the very few who saw my jaws and was like I want to spend
3: more time in the water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of pulled me into the water as a as a as opposed to the opposite. Yeah, for, for sure.
2: So, can you then talk about that's your dream you want to study sharks?
3: How does your early
2: career go? Because I mentioned in your bio how the study of sharks has taken you really all over the world, but it wasn't local for a long time. So can you talk about like the beginning of your career and having to go find sharks in other parts of the world?
3: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I went through high school, obviously. I had an interest in biology. You know, in those days, they didn't do a lot of marine biology, per se, in high school like they do today, which is great. Um, So I just took advanced biology and then I moved on. I I figured I'd pick a school that focused on, uh, you know, marine science, marine biology. And uh, University of Rhode Island has an excellent uh, biology department as well as a school of oceanography. So I went to University of Rhode Island. And while I was there, you know, a major step in my life was hooking up with a program uh, that was a federal shark research program not far from URI down near the the URI's Bay Campus, you know, in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And that was the National Marine Fisheries Service Cooperative Shark Tagging Program that was headed up by, by Jack Casey. So that period of five years, you know, and, it, and it's really the, the first major section in my book, right? And it's really focused on the work being done uh, by the pioneer, the shark scientist pioneer, Jack Casey, and my interaction with him, his his uh, collaborating scientists, my working at, I started as a volunteer in his program, and then I, uh, I moved on to become a technician, and uh, while I was working on my master's degree, so I went back to URI for a master's degree, and that was really where my trajectory as a shark scientist, you know, took off. In 87, I moved on to the state of Massachusetts, you know, and a lot of my early research, you know, at at the state of Massachusetts was really just carrying on what I started working under Jack's program, but establishing a shark research program for the state of Massachusetts. And so I moved out to Martha's Vineyard where my position was was stationed, which was not a bad gig, right? Um, and of course, being infatuated with Jaws, that's where the movie was filmed. And I began doing shark research locally. So a lot of my early work was on Massachusetts New England shark species, you know, from, from blue sharks, which I did my master's degree on, all the way down to, you know, smaller dogfish sharks, you know, some of the carcarinids like brown sharks, duskies, you know, sand tigers, sandbars, and then Um, all the way up to basking sharks, but one of the things I was also doing at the time, and you mentioned this, Brendan, you know, is I was collaborating with people in other parts of the world as well. So as my reputation built as a scientist, and as I I became a better scientist, uh, I met a lot of people at conferences and such, and began networking and collaborating and, uh, and ended up doing research in, in many other parts of the world, which I still enjoy today to some extent, you know. Um, but the White Shark, you know, coming back to New England has really, you know, got me focused closer to home. But, you know, my early experiences with White Sharks w- was not off New England, you know. It was in other parts of the world. Right, and that's must be so cool for
2: you, having grown up, like, in and around this area and having to go... <laughs> Travel all over the world to
3: find a white shark to now have them back here. Oh Christ, yeah, man, I'll tell you. That, I mean, that's um, you know, that, that's a gift. You know, that's 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 being in the right place at the right time. So here I am, you know, a shark biologist studying every species but the white shark. And then I, you know, I I rub a, a lantern, a genie comes out, and he says, "What do you want?" And I go, "I'd like to have white sharks in my backyard." And suddenly it happens, you know. Um, and that started about two thousand and nine. So yeah. All right, pinch myself, pinch myself
2: <laughs> again, you' you must be one of the few people being like, yeah, let's bring more white sharks up up closer <laughs> to me uh, but can can you explain why white sharks weren't were not here in the area for so long?
3: Yeah, um there's a couple of factors that drove that um and, and as a result, you know if if a scientist can't go out and predictably find the animal that he or she is studying, right? Um, they're not going to be able to do their research, and so um, for much of my early career, I was studying those sharks that I did have access to, which were blue sharks and mako's and threshers and those kinds of ana- those species. And um, what's happened in the case of the of the white shark is uh, we what we've done starting back in 1972, is we've given seals and other marine mammals um, the highest level of protection at the federal and state level, you know, and and what ha- that has allowed over the course of the last 50 years is allowed some marine mammal populations to uh, recover, you know, and a good example, of that might be the humpback whale, for example. And so, uh, other good, exa- good examples are the seal populations that were driven to the brink of extinction here in New England. Now they're back. Um, they're recolonizing areas where they once were. And I kind of use the I always use the analogy. And in, 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 if you're going to set up a, a new restaurant that's loaded with that kind of uh, uh, food and namely seals, you're going to draw the customers and the customers when it comes to seals anywhere in the world are the great white sharks. And so white sharks now are coming back to areas where they once existed in greater numbers to feed on seals. And they're doing that closer to shore, you know? And so that uh, that's the phenomenon that's, that's occurred over the last, you know, 20 years for us. And it's uh, and now given us, for the very first time, predictable access to this species here in the Atlantic.
0: So this sounds you know very similar to some programs to protect like deer population in certain places that have you know resulted in an increase in in wolves how do you i mean obviously as a shark person how do you how do you sort of view this effort um in its totality like was it a good thing
3: yeah i, I think you know and it's an issue i deal with in the book, and I take, I try to take it head on, you know, you'll meet shark scientists who really don't want to discuss about, you know, shark attacks, right? They don't want to talk about shark attacks. I, I talk about shark attacks because I deal with shark attacks, you know, when you, you know, you could view this and I do view it as a conservation success story, right? Just as you would, some people would view the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone. But just like with wolves, there are repercussions, you know, humans have moved into areas, you know so during the period that sharks were basically gone, seals were gone from Cape Cod. Cape, Cape Cod, um, which is really where we do all of our research, has moved from being you know uh, an agricultural based economy to a tourist- based econo- economy that draws people from all over the world to enjoy their their natu- to enjoy the natural beauty and specifically, you know the waters off Cape Cod. That draws people um and now we've got a top predator feeding on its natural prey overlapping with human activities and and that's an issue that needs to be discussed that's something that we talk about quite a bit in the book and it's some and it's and it's complex issue you know so if you're on the side of conservation and you really look at this as a, a success story you also have to take into consideration the repercussions of that you know, And it's no secret, Cape Cod's had a series of shark bites over the last decade, including a, a, a fatal one in 2018. And it's something that I think about as a scientist and as well as beach managers and local business owners on Cape Cod, you know, likely every summer.
0: When when you um, are doing a, a lot of your research, or just sort of reading about how um, some of the tracking that you're able to do on the sharks to sort of understand their feeding patterns and things like that, what would you say the kind of the, for lack of a better word, like the the goal is? Is it to uh, continue on with the conservation efforts for the gray seals and figure out a way? to kind of maybe divert the shark population away from shores where people are swimming or well, yeah, how, how do you think about um, where the research, where you hope the research kind of leads you and what solutions that you're looking to to find?
3: Yeah, I really, I, I appreciate that question because it really points to the evolution of our own thinking, my own thinking as a scientist. Um, when I first started with this white shark work in 2009, where we were actually tagging sharks white sharks in the Atlantic for the first time with highly sophisticated technology, I was very much interested in the big picture. You know, where do these animals move in time and space? You know, and, and, and as a classically trained fisheries biologist, what I'm interested in is how do those movements correspond also to the natural history of this animal? You know, one thing that my agency does, cause I do work for a fisheries agency is we manage natural resources. And so for our fisheries managers to implement any regulations relative to any species, whether we're talking about striped bass or we're talking about great white sharks, you know, scientists like myself are in the field, are collecting the data that it gives them the tools to do that, you know? And what we try to do is we balance, you know, harvest with, with conservation to have sustainability. And we're mandated by law, you know, at the federal and at the state level to do that. Um, Now we did a lot of that in the early part of this research. And then we started seeing these negative interactions between white sharks and people, you know, people were being bitten. And it was really the, the, the fatal attack in 2018 that got us thinking, you know, this, this big picture kind of questions are wonderful. And they're, they're really interesting relative to the biology of the animal, but they're really not doing much in terms of trying to save human lives. And, um, and so we really shifted our research to trying to better understand the way the white shark behaves in the nearshore coastal waters of Massachusetts. So we're, we were trying to answer the very simple question. And we're still trying to do this um, on how, when and where they are most likely to feed on their natural play, prey and, and therefore also more likely to make a mistake and, and bite a person. And so we've been using newer technologies to look at these really fine behavioral patterns so that we can advise beach managers and the general public as to what areas and what times to avoid those areas where a shark could be feeding on a seal. You know, we think, I think that's the natural progression forward when it comes to our research. You know, I don't do seal research, um, even though I'd like to be studying the seal more intensively as well, because it's really the behavior of the seal that dictates how the shark behaves right um and ultimately we're all trying to come up with mitigation strategies to avoid you know shark attack you know and it's 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 not easy you know you can go to places like south africa and south australia and western australia where they've had a number of shark attacks you know on an annual basis and have been dealing with this issue for decades and still can't come up with a clear solution to, to to solving it. Um, but I also want to put it in the context of what's the real risk here, you know? And, and, and I know, you know, we've all seen the analogies, right? Of, well, you're more likely to be, you know, struck by lightning and all those kinds of things, right? And that's true. Um, but we need to know that even a single shark bite has a tremendous impact on a community, you know, not only the victim and their family, but the community as well. So, you know, I don't like to downplay the risk. I like to keep it in perspective and also know the repercussions of such things.
2: No, I I appreciate you taking it head on. But like in that vein, if you are a conservationist or someone like you that's celebrating the return of the great white to the Atlantic where they had existed for so long before humans in many ways chased chased them away, how do you sell that as a success story though? Because to, to Ricky's point, it's like, we, we say like, oh, let's conserve these these populations, whether it's deer or seals, but then the ultimate outcome of that is we, we're now inviting these apex predators kind of back into our lives, even though they didn't exist before. So what's like the messaging to the public of, no, this is a good thing and should be looked at as a success story.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we try to do, and I say we, because I have a research team and I work closely with the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy um, is we try to we, we feel an educated public is the best, the, be, the better equipped to make wise decisions. Right. And 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 so we share almost everything we do with them. And, you know, as you can imagine, when it comes to sharks and people and seals in particular, there's a broad spectrum of opinions. You know, I can talk to a commercial fisherman tomorrow and many of them are my friends and he'll say to me you got to get rid of these seals they're driving me nuts they're killing me they're killing me. And I understand that. I absolutely understand that, you know. And then I'll talk to the opposite end of the spectrum who feels that you don't want to. Greg, we don't want you even touching these sharks because you're hurting their feelings, you know. So I've got those folks I deal with, you know. Sometimes I'm characterized, oh, you're you're a shark hugger, Greg, because you study them, you know. But actually, I'm much more of an objective scientist, you know. And, and I chose to work for a natural resource agency because I am all about you know, balancing harvest. You know, I I go deer hunting, you know, okay. You know, if there's deer in my backyard and I don't like what they're doing to my backyard, I'm going to eat them. You know, that's just, that's what we do, right? I think we should do. So I'm somewhere in the middle. And what I found is when I get out and talk to groups, the majority of people, you know, are somewhere in in the middle. You know, they understand the complexity of this issue, you know. Um, If I sit down with somebody who says, let's eradicate the SEALs, I'll actually ask them, how do we do that? You know, let's talk about how we do that. And, And I think that's a conversation worth having, you know, because it sounds easy, but it's not, you know.
2: And it's, it's funny, you, you, you just hit on so many themes that Ricky and I talk about in our, our, our weekly episodes, uh, when we're talking about current events and politics, and it's funny how much they apply really to all areas of life and in, in, in science. And so if I take it out from let's take it away from the advocate point of view, and just put it more into the science point of view can explain why it's beneficial for people to continue to have to protect these apex predators like a great white shark.
3: I mean, I can, so, you know, I'll take it from the approach of the, of the, of the large predatory top predator, you know, the, the, the the great white shark. Um, So, you know, obviously, you know, as we just talked about, people are concerned about the growing population of seals, you know, Um, and, you know, my argument would be like, you know, when it comes to the ecosystem in general, right? So one of the things we try to achieve, and I think everybody to some extent will agree that a well-balanced ecosystem that can support healthy fisheries and at the same time allow animals to do what they naturally do is what we all want to strive for. you know and we're we're mandated by federal and state law to to hit those balances. we we, we unless we change those laws. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. If anything we've moved in, you know, further along in terms of, of, of protection. But um, so the job of the great white shark is to naturally cull seals, you know? So, uh, you know, I'll have the conversation with a commercial fisherman and say, you know, let's, let's let the sharks do their job. You know, we don't, one of the things we're trying to figure out is how much will the sharks naturally cull the seal population? You know, that's one of the questions we're trying to answer. Well, do, does each shark, and we've counted over, you know, 600, that visit Cape Cod. You know, they're not all there at once, right? Um, how many do they each shark eat a season? You know, how big is the seal population? How many would that ultimately reduce? And and how will that affect the movements of the seal population now that you've got a top predator putting pressure on it, you know? And so if you remove the top predator, which wasn't there, the seal population will get completely out of control. And sometimes disease will control that, and that's beginning. To happen as well, so I want these natural. I think we're er- too early to intervene, frankly, and I think we need these natural forces, you know, to take effect. Now, if somebody was being bitten every single day um, off Cape Cod, that might change, you know, the picture quite a bit, right? Um, but the rarity of these events is 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 am- just not that many.
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um... Because one, like science evolves, but two, that, that was going to be kind of my follow up question is like when should humans like in policy and government kind of be putting their thumb on the scale and what you're kind of saying at this point is maybe not yet this is all still like a relatively recent phenomenon let's kind of see
3: how it plays out. Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed is people are modifying their behavior in response to the presence of the sharks you know Uh, where these sharks occur in the greatest numbers is along the is along the eastern shoreline of cape cod so it's 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 basically along the forearm down to the elbow you know all the way up from the fingertips of Provincetown down down to chatham um that's where the seals are located now one of the things we've noticed the last two years is we're not seeing as many seals you know seals are not stupid you know if there's something not that far away that wants to eat them right they're either going to um change their behavior or they're going to move you know and so we're wondering whether we're seeing a a shift in distribution already relative to the presence of something that wants to bite them and eat them right um and, and and also you know we're seeing fewer sharks the last two years because if the seals move away the sharks are not likely to stay here. They're not here to bite people or eat bluefish and striped bass. The only reason a big shark's going to come very close to shore is cuz it wants to eat a seal. Um so we're seeing some changes and I'm, I'm I'm interested in whether these persist and actually the heyday of the brand new restaurant drawing all the customers, you know, you know how restaurants kind of settle out over time, you know, and you you walk in, it's too crowded, hell I'm out of here. I'm going to go across the street. Um, that happens, you know? So, yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of, you know, we're watching and it takes a little time and, and humans tend to be impatient, um, but we got to let the ecosystem balance out and figure out what the role these white sharks actually will play. Yeah,
2: that's, I mean, what a fascinating, like awesome time to be in this field and watching this all play out in real time in your backyard. I'm curious, this isn't, and again, this kind of goes back to what Ricky was saying earlier. This isn't different than what's happening with other apex predators a- across the world. If you think about places like Africa or India or China, when you have apex predators, whether it's lions or tigers or what have you, that are like economically threatening people's livelihoods. So oftentimes, you'll have people that are growing like, their livestock, you know, their cattle or whatever, are being threatened by these apex predators, and then they're, they're killing them, which puts these apex is more in danger. It's like a really negative cycle. Do you or have you done any like work with or have had conversations with people in other fields that are like also kind of like studying apex predators and dealing with maybe some of these same economic challenges that uh, might be facing these predators?
3: You know, I have. I have it. I have to say, I have it. I've read some of the literature. Um, you know, and uh, honestly, if you if you told me you know, five years ago, six years, 10 years ago, you know, you're going to be going down this road of, you know, trying to enhance public safety because of the risk of shark bites. Um, I would have said, no, no, I'm a fisheries biologist. We don't go down that road, but I am, you know? So, you know, I talk about, you know, the restoration of apex predators, the complexity of the issues. And I used w- the reintroduction of wolves, which we're all really familiar with at Yellowstone, you know, and the scientists there will argue that, you know, the wolves have put Yellowstone Park back into n- its natural balance, you know, which makes it, you know, is is an environmental gain. And I think, arguably, you know, a gain for society. Um, but at the same time, you got folks on the outside of the park who are going to say, no, it's not, it's killing me here. So I, I understand that, you know, because I talk to, you know, one of the things I bring out in the book is the fact that um, I work a lot with fishermen, you know, commercial and recreational fishermen have taught me a lot, you know, you know what they've seen on the water, but also some of the tools I use on the water and how I can do my job better on the water have come f- learning through fishermen. So we have these candid conversations because I want to learn from them, you know, particularly when it comes to, you know, obviously the presence of seals in greater numbers um, and uh, and what can possibly be done about it, you know, and what kind of mitigation we can use to deter seals from interacting with You know, whether it be the, the species they're trying to get or whether direct interactions with their gear as well. So, you know, these are complex issues and I don't claim to know much about all everything about them. But it certainly has got me reaching over into some of these other fields, into other 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 arenas like the terrestrial environment to see how they're dealing with it.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting because it does feel so much like these issues are similar, even though they're in very different like ecosystems and different places around the globe. But and so it's really the first one of the first times it's it's kind of been home for us. But I know other people across the globe have been dealing with this for, as you mentioned, decades. So other kind of one other area we wanted to get into was the main like season for sharks here in the Cape is August, September, October. But it's not like the the seals are not really restricted to that time. That that's really kind of as far as my understanding is like that's the shark uh, like feeding season, but not necessarily the seal season. So can you explain like why is that? Can why why is that? Why are sharks here mostly in August, September, October?
3: Yeah, you know, just going back to our last conversation, one of the things I try to emphasize in the book is as a, as a conservationist to the conservationists out there, you know, be careful what you wish for, right? Because it does it does come with the complexity of these, this issue, you know, of restoring top predators to places where humans that are now dominant, you know, and, and are become accustomed to activities. Um, but when it comes to the seasonality of sharks on Cape Cod, it's really uh, driven by water temperature, you know. Um, almost every marine species that visits New England, you know, from southern New England all the way up to Canada, right? Um, is a seasonal visitor because water temperatures warm and it gives most of those species access to really productive foraging areas um, during the you know, late spring, summer, early fall, even into the early winter, depending on what kind of year we got, right? And so, you know, whether you're talking about bluefish or striped bass or you name it, you know, or sharks, most of them are seasonal migrants. And the timing of their migration really depends on water temperature. So if we get into a, you know, a cold snap early in November, that, that's going to drive many species away and south, you know, and this and white sharks are no different. Now, that doesn't mean their restaurants closed, right? Because the seals, they're well geared up. For the for the winter time, you know, they love winter, you know, and and they love the Outer Cape because the water, even in the summertime out there is cooler. You know, I, I talk to people who go to the beach every day in, on Cape Cod and I say, well, have you changed your behavior? They said, no, not at all. I don't swim here. It's too damn cold, you know, and I, I go, really? But the surfers, they don't change their behavior, but some other folks do. Um, And so the sharks are locked into this peak season of August, September, October, because water temperature is ideal for them. Um, Actually, we get more seals here in the wintertime. So after the sharks leave, the seals will migrate south from from the Gulf of Maine. We'll get the harbor seal, which is virtually gone all summer. And then some other species like the hooded and monk seals might even show up. So
0: I think that's a... Perfect transition. Definitely, before we let you go, we wanted to ask you since you've been at this for over thirty years, um, how the kind of changing climate has impacted things that you've sort of your your regular observations. I think the uh, you know water temperature is certainly part of, part of the story, but curious kind of in general, what you've what you've noticed.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, i've had some real fun with climate change actually quite honest um you know the media is so focused uh on climate change now and they think that science is done in 10 minutes and can tell you the impacts of climate change um and it's simply not the case all right uh so you know i get people think the occurrence of white sharks off cape cod is because of climate change and the currents of white sharks in the gulf of maine and canada is because of climate change but why is it that I have historical records going back to the 1800s that say that white sharks have always occurred in the Gulf of Maine and off Canada um, historically, and um, and so I do not think that the movement of this species into uh, the Gulf of Maine and parts Canada and Cape Cod is is driven by changes in in water temperature, um, and and I don't think we're seeing a lot of the impacts of climate change on the great white shark at all. And and I'm particularly interested in in what we're going to see relative to seals and climate change. Remember, they have fur coats and a thick, fat blubber layer. And so if we start seeing shifts in temperature um, to greater temperatures, I imagine seals might redistribute. And that, of course, will have repercussions relative to how sharks redistribute. Now, I also tell the media that it doesn't mean that climate change isn't going to change the behavior of these animals in terms of their migratory timing. It could, you know, as we see, if indeed water temperatures continue to climb and we know that the Gulf of Maine is heating at a rate faster than almost any other part of the world. So um, if that continues to happen, it might change the timing of white shark migration as it will a number of other species, right? You know, we know they already go to Canada, but they might, you know, if it warms, you know, if, if the summer is extended by two weeks, um, they may, you know, the sharks may stay longer, right? They may arrive earlier, they may leave a little bit later, so the timing of the migration uh, could change. But I'm more interested, really, in what happens with the seals, because I think that'll drive what the white sharks do more so.
0: I, I think I think that's really interesting, and just in general, something to always keep in mind with, as as far as these changing or evolving ecosystems goes this constant these feedback loops and how changing one thing you know the whatever the butterfly effect type of those ripples and how how all of it is is connected but some of it in ways that you just wouldn't necessarily think and so part of it is sitting back and trying to observe and understand how things are happening and why they're happening so anyways,
3: that was, uh, I agree. Yeah. No, Ricky, I, I agree a hundred percent. You know, there's this rush, there's this mad rush on right now, you know, and, and scientists do want to work at a slower pace because we can't draw conclusions just yet. Everything's projected with models that have really big error terms associated with them. So, you know, I'm more for, let's take a breath, let's collect the data. And uh, and see how it shapes up over years to come, you know, and yeah, but but I, you know, I see my fellow scientists, you know, rushing, trying to trying to draw conclusions based on very little.
2: Really well said. We appreciate it. Um, so, Dr. Skolmo, before we do actually let you go, why don't you just give some plugs? If people were interested in your book that you just released this summer, the the Chasing Shadows book, can you explain that? Like, where could people get that?
3: Yeah. I mean, Chasing Shadows is available at uh, uh, almost all, every book, your local bookstores, as well as obviously Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, so all major, wherever books are sold, you know, that's what the publisher tells me, you know, that's that's what we say about this podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Um, But
2: can you also, I, this, this is a better question. Give a pitch. I think when I've been reading up about your book, it's not just for people that love sharks or like want to study sharks. So can you maybe give a little bit more context? Who would be interested in your
3: book? Yeah, I mean, the number one, it's not a textbook about sharks, okay? Because that will bore the hell out of the average person who doesn't love sharks. And and believe me, every day I meet the people that are really sh- sharkophiles, they're shark nuts, and, and I love them. But I'm trying to draw in... You know, another audience, the broader audience as well, you know. And, and he, I kind of like to describe it as, you know, we're all familiar with the movie Jaws, and, and many of us love that movie. I think it's a great horror film. And there are little tidbits of reality in it that are exploded into, into the, the monster side of things. Um, but if you think of this book as kind of drawing people in like Jaws did, but really kind of setting the record straight, you know, relative to the realities of this species, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, there are some wonderful aspects of these animals. And there are some really negative aspects of it. And I don't shy away from either side of that. And it's, it's really through my eyes and the trajectory of my career, going from, you know, a kid up to where I am today. And so I hope it inspires younger people, not just to be biologists, but to do what they love to do, to chase their dream, you know, to chase their shadows. And so, you know, and at the same time, you know, set the record straight about this species, but also talk about the complexity of restoring an apex predator to an environment that people have now inhabit.
2: Well, that that's a great pitch. And you've also written a number of other books that I imagine people could find uh, yeah. wherever,
3: yeah. Yeah, sure. the Shark Handbook is is a great general guide to sharks and how we study their biology. And then I have another one coming out in the spring called The Great White Shark Handbook, which is everything you ever want to know about white sharks with tons of photos that I've taken. So um, so I appreciate you guys letting me plug it. No, I
2: really encourage people to go look into Dr. Scoville. He's got, like I said, a number of books on on sharks, but also just on like aquariums and other like aquatic life. That if you're if you're interested in this sort of area at all, uh, please please go check him out. And Dr. Skolm, I'm sure. Uh, I think this is such a fun. This almost feels like uh, like Christmas in July, but like the opposite. And so like Shark Week in in January. Uh, and so <laughs> I'm sure when. Uh, when the summer comes back around and you we see sharks in the news again and we see you in the news again, it'll be fun to to follow that even more closely and even more knowledgeably. So again, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. We we really appreciate it.
3: Uh, Brandon Ricky, it was really fun to chat with you. I, I appreciate the the uh, the conversation. I really do. Thanks. Nice. It was great. Yeah thank thank
2: you so much. Yeah.
3: No problem. Thank you.
0: I like that one that uh the, like christmas in july this is shark week in january
2: um that was yeah a- what's well, those yeah it's those fun things that's like why don't we just do this more often no, no so i guess like a little bit of backstory on us trying to get dr scomal onto the program is when he came across on our radars in july i reached out to him and he was kind of like uh, i'm a little busy like Tracking sharks <laughs> for the next four or five months. when you come back to me in the winter, and I'll have a little bit more time. So we do really appreciate him, and I, I know in some ways this is the off season for sharks and like marine life, and, and certainly up here in the Northeast. But I think this some of these issues are always relevant. And I was, I think like I kept saying to him, Ricky, like I appreciate that response because that conversation exceeded even what I had anticipated in the sense that there was so much of what he said he was speaking from this like scientific background and i feel like so often we talk about science related things without actually listening to the scientists and so i think it was so fun to have someone like dr Scumel, uh on the program not just to talk about sharks but to really talk about conservation and climate change and like listening to data and so much of what he said just really like resonated with me not just in the field of sharks but more broadly, whether in conservation or even like politics in some sense. Yeah,
0: yeah there was, there were a lot of great kind of uh, metaphorical through lines that, um, you know, so often people will sort of force you or want to, you know, pigeonhole you and, and and sort of say, you know, don't equivocate. Is it is it good or is it bad? Or is it mm-hmm. this or is it that? And I think he did a great, I, 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 he said it, I love the, the quote verbatim, but the, like, just kind of understanding the complexity. And I can't tell you exactly what this does, because it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the world. And when X happens, Y happens, but also Z, and then these things are all connected. And so you can't necessarily, you don't have this magic bullet to just put your your, uh, your thumb on the scale and, and set things in the way that you want them to without then creating some new scenario that perhaps you would thought of, but more likely that you hadn't thought of before.
2: Yeah. And I would have thought my expectation going in was he was going to be more of a shark advocate because he spent his whole life wanting to study sharks. And then he's been studying sharks his entire like adult life and career but i again i really appreciated how you know, he at you know they had the good the bad the ugly of like these animals are really great and there are so many really great reasons to protect them but let's be real about you know what's happening out there and that there's some really negative consequences to people's lives most importantly whether here in the northeast or as he, he pointed out in places like south africa and australia but also to people's like economic Lives and situations, and he, again, he. I think he did a really great job talking about commercial fishermen here in, um, in the Cape, or, toward the tourist ind- industry. And again, we know that this is playing out all over the world with various animals and. So again I appreciate his perspective and just being like I have some people out there who are like don't touch the sharks leave leave the, leave the sharks uh Dave Porter has a book called Sharks Have Feelings Too which I like almost wanted to reference uh, that when he brought that up but then you have all other people being like we need to get rid of these sharks because they're they're out there hunting humans and his his point which is right is the absolute tragedy what happened in 2018 but knock on wood we've you know largely you know, avoided uh deaths from sh- from sharks and again i think he did a nice job not downplaying the negative sides of it but saying i think the vast majority of people are in the middle it's like yes yes <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i mean yeah. right preaching to preaching to the choir
0: i thought one of the other things that he had mentioned in that specific segment was that like right we can talk about the probability of you being bit by shark being less than you being struck by lightning but they're the they're a bit of a false equivalency because you know lightning doesn't deter tourists from cape cod which doesn't you know what i mean so i thought i thought that was very interesting yeah because we think about i mean you know we've had this debate over kind of gun violence right like sure your likelihood of actually being shot by somebody else is probably pretty small but the the appearance or kind of the reputation for violence in a specific area has all these like downstream effects and implications and so then it's like all right well does it make sense then to pay more attention to this issue or less attention or do we need is should it be re-education on the other side or how you handle um each one of these situations i think is um i think is is tricky obviously, but it's also just emblematic of how we struggle to deal with our kind of perception of risk. And then also the magnitude of, of these issues. Like if we only think about it in terms of deaths, is are these things a big deal? Or, you know, if someone gets bit, is that, you know, just as bad in terms of, uh, uh of like those, those sort of broader societal impacts. I don't know. I, I, I mean, the whole thing was, uh, uh, credit credit to you for for finding uh, Dr. Skolmull. And then uh, just like, again, fascinating discussion. We are always very lucky.
2: Yeah, just to go back to where I started, I, I appreciate when he was like, just let's see it play out. Let's collect the data. And then we can kind of make our value judgments or policy decisions after it all plays out. And what he acknowledged, he was like, if all of a sudden next summer, the amount of shark attacks drastically increases, well, our policy is going to have to go one way. But if we're starting to see next summer and the summer is following that, we're actually getting fewer shark sightings here in the Cape, well, then maybe our policy goes the other way. And just think so often, and even Ricky, you and I probably are complicit in this, we get caught in like the, the media cycle and this uh, things have to happen right now, like the urgency of everything. And what I his, his really scientific approach to like, let's sit back and, and watch everything play out. And once we collect the data, then we can make informed decisions. I was like yeah I think that would probably be better not only with dealing with sharks but really if we applied that approach to everything that we did yeah
0: yeah yeah so 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 true and me like the parting thought or something that I took away from what he said was that you know ecosystems tend to like want to find this balance and we tend to think uh, yeah. you know the perception is that balance is sort of the the operative goal and that a lot of times you know, something will happen and everyone will be like, you know, why don't we do something? We need to do something right now. And I think part of what he was saying is that if we sit back and we actually really try and understand what happened, how it happened, we may find that this issue is actually going to correct
3: itself.
2: Well said. Well said by you. Well said by Dr. Skomal. That was a real treat. I hope uh, people enjoyed it as much as we did. I think that's I think that was a fun one. Yeah, for sure.
0: All right, buddy, it's been uh, it's been good as always. Until next time,
2: see you.
1: We stay up all night on Garner Avenue. Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some mornings left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find in a Chase the lion's head folks with different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better around somewhere along the line we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong some morning's you away some morning let your ego bruise but what i wouldn't give for the hope i used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds be though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made all the arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster. Cause though Main Street may not sell, it's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing. The human for the politics it's time to find a better way to disagree some days you win some days will leave your ego through but well i wouldn't give for oh, hope i used to find it, Chase the lines here folks with different minds because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, what I wouldn't give The hope I used to find In a case of Head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz Need an early morning, but.